Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. While the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, enter, for we who have believed, enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I, uh, I hope you're doing well. It is uh, so good to uh, be here with you. If I hadn't had the chance to uh, meet you yet, my name is Michael Badger, and I am uh, one of the elders, one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church. And, uh, and again, I'm just uh, excited that we can be here together to, to sing praises to God and, uh, and to dive into His Word and If you were here last week, then you probably know that uh, we saw the preacher who delivered the message of Hebrews use Psalm 95 to exhort the early Jewish Christians to not be like the Israelites, to not be like the Israelites in their time of wandering in the desert after their exodus from Egypt, who, when the trials came, hardened their hearts toward God rather than turning to Him in faith, trusting in His providence and and trusting in His care. And so because of this hardening, the generation that was freed from Egypt was not permitted to enter into the promised land. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we also see that those Israelites who came out of Egypt ended up dying in the wilderness. They, they, their bodies fell in the wilderness because of their sin, but, but more specifically, their sin of unbelief. Because of their refusal to put their trust in God. Now, Psalm 95 doesn't just say that for the Israelites, their unbelief caused them not to enter into the promised land, the the land of Canaan, right? But that they were not permitted to enter into God's rest. As we will see shortly, God's rest wasn't wasn't just simply this, this plot of land. 
God's rest wasn't just this, this area, this geographical land. It wasn't, it wasn't just Canaan. It was something much greater. But that unbelieving generation missed it. They missed it. They, they just fell utterly short of it. And so as we begin in chapter 4 this morning, you will find that the preacher yet again quotes Psalm 95 to highlight this rest. And I know that we talked a little bit about this rest already last week. And so some of this sermon may, may seem really familiar to you. But again, if you are like me, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are truths within Scripture that we need to hear again and again and again. And I need to hear the message of rest again and again and again. And so therefore, we are going to look at this rest. We're going to dive into it and get to the bottom of what exactly Psalm 95, and therefore the preacher of Hebrews, is speaking of in terms of this rest. And then we're going to look at the exhortation and warning that we, the church, are given in regard to reaching that blessed rest. But before we do anything else, let us begin with prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, You are so good. And Lord, we come before You asking that You help us humble our hearts this morning. And we ask You, Lord, that You, Lord, by Your Spirit, leads our way as we look to Your Word for wisdom and for truth in God for rest. And so illumine our minds illuminate this, this passage in Hebrews 4 to us. I ask this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to be going through verse 11 as, as uh, you guys have already seen when Heather was reading the passage for us this morning, but we're going to be kind of jumping around a bit. Usually I like to take it just one verse at a time, and we're going to hit every single verse, so, so don't worry, but we're going to be kind of jumping around just a little bit. And as I said a moment ago, the reason for this is, is because I want to begin by first looking at this word rest that we saw last week in chapter 3 and that we see again in chapter 4. I want us to, to understand it and to, and to really get and, and hold in our hearts the actual definition of what it, what it means. Because the, the question really is, is what kind of rest is this? Is it, is it an, an earthly rest? That we, that we think of when we go home after you know, uh, church on Sunday morning, we lay down on the, on the couch? Or, or is it more of like a, a, a spiritual rest? Is it, is it a rest that is to be had now, that we can enjoy now? Or is it a rest that we look forward to in the future? And the answer to this question is very, very important to the Christian life because many people come to religions of, of all sorts looking for rest. Do they not? That's one of the primary reasons that people come to a religion. There are many people who turn to a variety of religions because they have come to the end of their ropes. 
And they're looking for some sort of relief from the, from the miseries or the chaos of their lives. Maybe that's why you came to church this morning. You had a hard week. You had a hard month. You had a hard life. And you're seeking some sort of, some sort of respite from that. And if you're a Christian, then you want, you want that rest too, right? And so this theme of rest is very important to us. It's not one that we should take lightly. But remember that if you are a Christian, you also want truth. Right? You don't want to anchor your hope on promises that the Bible never makes to you. And so when we look at this word rest, we want to know what the Bible says about it rather than than to fill that word with meaning ourselves, right? We don't want to just make up the definition of rest and say, yes, I want God's rest and have no idea what we're actually talking about. We want to know what the Bible says about it. Now, this concept of rest isn't just important to, to us here this morning. But it is obviously very important to the preacher of Hebrews as well. In fact, the Greek word for rest that we see here, the the Greek word katapousis, is used nine times in the whole of the New Testament. And eight of those nine times are actually found in Hebrews uh, 3.11 through 4.11. Eight of the nine times. And now, like us, the preacher of Hebrews has no interest whatsoever in making up his own definition of rest. And so in order to help us understand it, he again, in the first half of verse 3 of our passage this morning, points to Psalm 95, just as he did in chapter 3. And so take a look at that first part of verse 3 with me. It says, For we who believed enter that rest, as he, meaning God, has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And again, he is speaking of the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. Now, at this point, the meaning of rest is still still somewhat vague. right? We don't don't fully see it yet. Even if you back up to chapter 3, where we see Psalm 95 first quoted, you wouldn't be alone in thinking that, that God's rest was simply meaning the promised land. Right? That's kind of what it, what it seems like, that the Israelites had a chance to enter into. But then as you continue reading verse 3, and then you, then you make your way into verse 4, our preacher here does a, kind of does a hard left turn, a real hard left turn, out of Psalms, and he brings us to the opening chapters of Genesis. He leaves the Psalms and goes into Genesis. You almost kind of get whiplash from how kind of how abrupt it is. But it's actually here, in the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, as he goes into the first opening chapters of Genesis, that we begin to see the meaning of God's rest come into sharper focus. So let's look at them. It says, For we who have believed enter that rest, As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And as you're first reading that, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? I don't understand that at all. Then he continues, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day 
from all his works. Now, verse 4 actually explains the end of verse 3, making it clear that the account of God creating the universe is actually in view here. It is a, it's a quote from Genesis 2. From Genesis 2. Now, if you go back to the very first chapter of that very first book of the Bible, you'll, you'll find what? You'll, you'll find the creation account, right? You'll find God at work in the creation of everything that exists. I mean, you remember Hebrews 1 and 3? That God is, God is the creator, God is the builder of all things, and that's exactly what you find in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, we, we see the creation of everything being brought about. We see that on the first day of creation, He brought light and darkness. And on the second day, He separated the, the waters from the heavens. And then on the third, He created dry land and vegetation. The fourth, He created the sun, moon, and stars. And the fifth, the animals and the waters and the birds in the sky. And then on the sixth day, He created the animals that roamed on the dry land. But then the magnum opus of His creation that He created on that sixth day, He created man and woman. Man and woman. Just those two. That might be confusing these days. But Now on the seventh day, that creative pattern ceased. It ceased. And as you turn the page, as you flip the page, over into Genesis 2, after God had finished His work on the seventh day, on that final day, He rested. He rested. Now what is important for us to understand is that this rest was not one of exhaustion. It wasn't a, a rest from tiredness, as if creating the universe caused God to, to just take a deep breath and just you know, kind of put his hands on his knees out of, out of just pure tiredness. Not even in the slightest is that true. Rather, friends, this was a rest of completion. Of completion. It was a rest like that of an artist who finished his painting and rested by sitting back to enjoy his handiwork. What is also important to understand is that the rest that God took on that seventh day did not end within a 24-hour within a period. It was not as if God took a break on the seventh day, but when the morning of the eighth came around, He said, you know, well, well, back to it. No, not at all. Rather, the rest of God continued on. It kept going. And it still continues to this very day. Friends, did you, did you know that? Right now, God is in a state of blissful rest that cannot be disturbed. And this, friends, should inform our theology. This should inform our theology. This should inform our very understanding of God. Because God being in rest does not mean uninvolvement. Rest for God does not mean His hand is not at work throughout human history. What, is truly, what it truly means is that God now exerts all of His authority over all of His creation from a position of rest. Isn't that incredible? Read with me Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. With that lens... Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all whose purposes? My purposes. God's purposes. My counsel counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Friends, this is a, a declarative statement about His sovereign rule. A rule that, that cannot be challenged. A rule that cannot be thwarted. A rule that cannot be hindered by even the most vile attempts of the devil. He has declared the end from the beginning. And what he has determined to come to pass in his wise counsel will come to pass full stop. No one, no one, no individual, no group, no nation, no army, no legion of demons, no election cycle, nothing can stand against King Jesus and his purposes. Right? He does all that He wills, and He does it all from a position of rest. That is how great, that is how mighty our King is. Even in His sovereign rule, He can do it all leisurely. Man, this, friends, this should greatly, greatly deepen our trust in Him. Nothing surprises God. Nothing. Nothing, nothing makes him jump up from his rest because he is afraid and he, and he doesn't know how to handle it. His rest is deep and inalterable because his sovereignty is absolute. And friends, how does, this, how does this shape your view of world events? Things going on right now. There's so much uncertainty. You turn on the news, turn on your favorite favorite. A source of information, and you'll see nothing but uncertainty and fear, not knowing what's going to happen. But how does this view of God in His sovereign rule from rest shape how you view all of that? How does it shape how you view politics? How does it, how does it shape your view of, of cultural trends, of the entire course of history? God's rule is so complete don't forget that He reigns over it in a state of unending rest. Friends, that is a God. That is the King and Savior that we can trust. And we can't trust anything else. Now what I hope is becoming clear for you is that the rest spoken of by God in Psalm 95, is, is not simply speaking of the type of earthly rest that the Israelites would find in Canaan, their promised land. You can actually simply read through the book of Joshua to, to see that truth for yourselves. In the book of Joshua, the Israelites, after the unbelieving generation, all died. They were finally able to enter into the promised land, but, but earthly peace is, is not what they found at all. Joshua records the many battles that they had to fight once they were there. And, and friends, they didn't win them all. And so in connecting the rest of God in Psalm 95 
with the unending rest of God that he entered into on the seventh day in Genesis 2, the author is pointing us, or the preacher of Hebrews, is pointing us to the reality that the true rest for those who believe in Jesus is the very same rest that God enjoys now. That's the rest. That's it. In other words, it is God inviting us to join with Him in His own rest, in communion with Him in it. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Friends, more on that in a moment. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. Now, the author wants to drive home the point that the rest spoken of in Psalm 95 is not meant to be understood as the entering of the promised land by the Israelites during the time of Exodus and and during the time of the, the book of Joshua. And so the preacher of Hebrews says this in verses 6 through 8. He says, Since therefore it, meaning the rest, remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, the author of Psalm 95, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. How clear is that, right? But do you see the point that he's making here? I know it's kind of hard. What the preacher of Hebrews is pointing to is that David, who wrote Psalm 95, by the way, is saying to the people in his own day, during the time of David, to not harden their hearts to the message of God so that they, too, can enter into God's rest. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, so what? What, is, what does that prove? Well, friends, David wrote Psalm 95 roughly 400 years after Israel entered into the Promised Land. 400 years after it. And so the preacher's argument is, if Joshua had already led the Israelites into the true rest of God, if that were true, why would God, through David, say 400 years afterward, after they had already been in the Promised Land, today, do not harden your heart. Today, do not turn away in unbelief so that you can enter into my rest. That wouldn't make sense, right? Because they'd already be in the promised land. They'd already be in the rest if that's what the rest meant. So do you, do you, get, do you get what I'm saying? If God's rest was to be found in the earthly land of Canaan, then David's words in Psalm 95 would make no sense because those reading it would already be in God's rest. But again, this this brings us back around to what I said earlier. God's rest was not Israel's entrance into the promised land. Rather, true rest is found in communion with God in His own rest. Our rest is His own rest that He invites us into. and, And through His just sheer mercy and grace shares with us. It is being with Him with that same intimacy that Adam and Eve shared with Him before the fall. This is why the preacher continues by saying in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The opportunity to enter into God's rest did not end with the generation of Joshua. It didn't end in the time of David. But friends, it it continues on to this, this very day. And that is a message that we should scream from the rooftops. And we live in a world that is desperately seeking for rest. And we, Christian, Christians, we, we have the answer to it. We know where true rest lies. You know, St. Albans, Vermont, they're going to be looking for rest in all the wrong places. They're going to be looking for it in in New Age religions. They're going to be looking for it in politics. They're going to be looking for it in themselves. But but friends, they're they're going to be left wanting. Because there's no rest in any of that. None. True rest is only found in God. And you know that. So what does that do to your heart? Doesn't that make you want to go and tell that to other people? There's rest for you. There's rest in God for you. Now, friends, there does, however, remain another question. Is the rest spoken of in Psalm 95 and here in Hebrews 3 and 4 a rest that that Christians are in now? Are we currently in this Sabbath rest, or is it a rest that is still to come on the other side of glory. Well, verse 10, I think, helps us with that question. It says, forever, for, sorry, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Now, as with many things in Scripture, I believe this can be and is meant to be understood in two different ways, but I do think there is a a primary way that we are supposed to understand it and a secondary way that we can understand it through the testimony of other passages in Scripture. So looking at that secondary understanding first, I believe this is pointing us to the fact that there is a, a portion, a little, a fragment of God's rest that all believers enter into immediately upon new birth, upon conversion. And the works that we rest from now, as verse 10 says, I believe those those works that we rest from now are the works of, of legalism. Working in order to try and garner favor in the sight of God. To try, to try to trick him into thinking that we are good enough to deserve heaven. But all we're really doing is proving how, despite our best efforts, we, like Romans 3.23, so poignantly reminds us, fall short of that glory of God. And so we who are believers now have a blessed rest from those legalistic works. We can put them down knowing that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. And instead, we we, we trade those legalistic works for joyful works. Joyful works of obedience that come from a, a heart of gratitude and love for the God who saved us. Not only that, but the rest that we enjoy now also carries with it a rest from from worrying about tomorrow. A rest from from even worrying about our eternity. 
The rest that we can enjoy now is rest of fearing if we're going to, to make it to heaven, if we've been good enough, or if we're going to have strong enough faith to, to make it to the end. How much anxiety does that bring on you? That's what you are afraid of. But friends, and I know we've been talking about this a lot lately, but if it were left to us to have a strong enough faith to make it to the finish line of heaven, friends, not a single one of us would make it. Not a single one of us. But the rest of God that we can enjoy now is the rest from the truth that, friends, in this life, we are blessedly not left alone. We're not left alone. Our loving God strengthens us. He supplies us with the faith that we so desperately need. And He sees us through the wilderness of life and into the glorious life to come. I was uh, teaching my son how to swing a baseball bat this past summer. One of the things I think that all dads kind of dream of with their children. We had the ball up on a, on a tee, you know, like tee ball. And to teach him, I had him place his hands on the bat. And then I uh, went around him and I, and I wrapped my hands around his own. And, and that's how I taught him how to swing, right? And then I brought him up to the tee and, and with my arms around his own, we hit the ball. We did it. But before I did this, before I wrapped my hands around his and my, my arms around his own, I left him alone to figure it out. And he placed his hands on the bat wrong. Go figure. And he, he swung the bat like a maniac. <laughs> and rather than hitting the ball, by the grace of God, he didn't hit his sister. But he either made contact with air or the actual tee itself that the ball was sitting on. Now, one of those pictures is what the Lord does with his own children. One of those pictures is. By His grace and mercy, He does not leave us alone to figure things out in this life. If He did, we would never make it to the end with our faith intact. Instead, as we live this difficult Christian life in this world, He comes along beside us and He wraps His arms around us and He supplies us with the strength that we need, with the instruction that we with the encouragement that we so desperately need so that we can make it to the end and that we can, we can gaze upon His beautiful face. And just as it was certain that with my arms wrapped around His own, that my son would, would hit that ball, you, believer, with your Savior's loving arms wrapped about you, you will make it to the end of your earthly pilgrimage and into glory. That hope, that real and true hope that you can hold on to, and that is oh so good, that's the rest that we can have now. That's the rest that we can find comfort in now. But as good as this rest that we enjoy at the moment, as good as it is, friends, it is still just a shadow. It's still just a, a hint it's just a, a picture of the true rest that we will experience after this life is over, as Pastor Paul mentioned earlier. I believe the primary purpose of verse 10 
is to tell us that there is coming a day that all of the work that we do, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but all of the work that we do of fighting against temptation, fighting against the the spiritual warfare waged against us by the enemy, all of the work that we do in trying to keep our eyes focused on Christ in the middle of suffering, friends, all of that, all that work, it's going to finally come to an end. Just as God rested on the seventh day, a rest that extends into eternity, and friends, so too will we put down all of that hard work and will enter into a rest of both body and soul that will continue forever. And we're not going to have to work at keeping our eyes focused on Christ because He's going to be right there. We're not going to have to work in, in fighting temptation because there is going to be no temptation. There's going to be no sin. I cannot wait for that final and ultimate Sabbath rest. Can you? Friends, I want to remind you of something I've already said. The rest that we have now and the ultimate rest that we will experience soon is tied to the rest that God Himself is enjoying right now, right? We've we've established that, right? But this means that the real manifestation or the real blessing of the ultimate rest that is to come is being not just just in heaven, not just in this, this wonderful promised land, but the true blessing of that ultimate Sabbath rest is the presence of God. It's God. That's the ultimate rest. Not heaven. God. Being in His presence. Rest isn't only being free from the various works that we spoke about just a moment ago, but it is being free from those works so that we may recline in the shade of our Savior and King. Commentator Richard Phillips put this beautiful truth in in this kind of funny way, I think. But he said that, that it would be so kind and so wonderful if after a, a long day of arduous work, he came home to his wife, and his wife surprised him with a trip to Venice. But only he was going, just for him. And assuming she was only doing this out of love and not looking to you know, get rid of him, it'd be wonderful, right? I mean, who wouldn't like that? And he would have a good time. But he said he, it wouldn't feel complete. It wouldn't feel complete. His time in Venice wouldn't have a a fullness of joy to it because because something would be missing, something would be lacking. What is that, friends? The presence of his wife. The company of his wife. Friends, the the joys of of heaven, the the splendor of new earth, it will be unspeakable. It will be amazing. We can't even begin to describe what it's going to be like. But friends, they would be incomplete. And our rest wouldn't be full without the presence, without the company of our loving God. We can never make the mistake of confusing the blessings of God, which, friends, includes heaven, includes our, our new bodies that we will receive, which includes new earth that we will get to enjoy, 
But we should never make the mistake of confusing the blessings of God with the complete, lacking in nothing, joy and rest that is found in just standing in His presence alone. He is our true rest. Everything, everything else is just, just merciful extras, right? Now, verses 9 and 10 also mention the, the Sabbath rest. Did you, did you notice that, that word used? The Sabbath rest. And so they actually, verses 9 and 10, also give us an insight into the actual importance of the fourth commandment. Do you remember what that is, the fourth commandment? This is Bible trivia time. You ready? Hey, there we go. All right. Gold star, man. Now the word Sabbath itself simply refers to that seventh day of the week that the Israelites in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament observed in remembrance of God resting on that seventh day. And so they took that rest on the seventh day of the week, their, their Sabbath rest that they were to keep holy. They, they, they took it very seriously and they rested on that day. And there's a lot of laws that were built up around it. So they, they took it very seriously. However, we would be mistaken to think that the only purpose of the second or sorry, the fourth commandment was to remind the Jewish people of God's rest in Genesis 2. That is absolutely crucial and essential to it. But in fact, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, you see that the Sabbath was actually jam-packed with meaning. Let me quickly run down some of the things that the Sabbath day in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, signified, and I'll tell you why it matters to us today. If you take a look at Exodus 31.13, God says that the Sabbath day of rest was a sign of God's covenant to His people that He had sanctified them meaning that He had set them apart for His purposes. In Exodus 20, again, God explains that their rest on the Sabbath was, was rooted in His own rest, and to remember that, Deuteronomy 5, 12-15 explains that the Sabbath was meant to be a reminder of God redeeming them, of God redeeming them from their slavery in Egypt. And then Leviticus 16, we see that the annual day of atonement fell on what day? The Sabbath. And so it was to remind them of the forgiveness that God offers to His people. And then as David points out in Psalm 95, it is also, or it was also, to point to the better Sabbath, to the greater Sabbath that all those who believe may enter into. So friends, did you, did you realize that the Sabbath day and the fourth commandment was meant to signify all of that? God's sanctification, the, the source of rest for His people being rooted in Himself, redemption and atonement, the forgiveness of sin, a, a great and future rest. Did you know all of that was tied to that fourth commandment? to that Sabbath day of rest. And this is why, again, we're, we're mistaken if we believe that, that when we think of the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, in, in the Old Covenant, that the people of God were, were meant to be really serious and, and, and solemn on this day. Right? I think that's often what I thought of when I would read about keeping the Sabbath. 
that they just kind of sat angrily in the corner of their homes while they just kind of waited grumpy for, or grumpily for the next day to come so they can just get back to work. And not at all. Not at all. As Stephen Whitmer in his commentary so rightly points out, the Sabbath day was meant to be a day of joy and, and celebration. It was meant to have joyful and, and happy undertones. And that was absolutely to be taken seriously, very seriously. It was, it was meant to be like a weekly holiday set aside to praise the God who accomplished all of the things that the Sabbath signified. And friends, this is, this is why we still observe it today. This is why even now we, we observe the Sabbath day. And Christians now celebrate it on Sunday rather than Saturday, which is when the Jews in the Old Covenant celebrated it. And the reason for this is because Jesus was resurrected on Sunday and the early church wanted to identify our rest in His resurrection, the, the security of our rest. And there are also references to the early church observing it on Sundays in, in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. So if you ever wonder why the day switched, those are the reasons. However, there is to be grace here, as Paul says in Colossians 2.16, we're not to judge another gospel-preaching church who decides that they want to observe the Sabbath on a Tuesday, for instance. We're not, to, we're not to judge them. But friends, what I believe to be clear is that Christians are still to observe the Sabbath for all of those same reasons as the Israelites did, but with a deeper understanding. They observed it with looking forward. We observe it looking back and looking forward, right? And I pray that this actually transforms your understanding of what we are doing here this morning. What this morning is all about. What this day is all about. Because we don't come here and gather and observe the Sabbath with one another out of glum, legalistic obligation. But rather, friends, we, we come together to, to celebrate right? To celebrate. We come together to remember the joy of our salvation because today is a day to rejoice that we have been set apart by God to be made holy, to be sanctified, to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. We come together this morning to remember that, friends, we have been redeemed. We have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ to be set free from our sin, from our slavery to sin, and the slavery from the, of the fear of death. And we come together as a church this morning to remember that we, Christians, that we've been forgiven of every single sin, every single one. That we have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That's what we're doing here this morning. Do you get that? Do you understand that? This isn't a social club. We get together for a purpose and a glorious purpose at that. Amen. And because of that, we come together to rejoice that the momentary rest that we experience on Sunday is meant to give us just a glimpse of heaven where our rest won't end and, and songs of praise will, will never cease.
from our lips. This Sabbath Sunday, friends, is just a foretaste of the Sabbath that's to come. And so I want you to revel in it. So often we roll out of bed on Sundays and we just think, ah, oh, gotta go to church. But I want you to revel in this. God wants you to enjoy Him by enjoying this day. Because in it, friends, He, he allows us to peer into eternity. Do you know that? This morning, you're getting just a small little glimpse, a small little window into what the rest of eternity is going to be like. You're going to be surrounded by the saints day in and day out. You're going to be singing praises to God day in and day out. And you're not just going to have, have God's word. You're going to have the word, the logos, right in front of you. You're going to sit in his presence, and you're going to be in pure bliss and joy. And right now is just a, just a foretaste. So revel in it, friends. Have joy today. So friends, take this day seriously. I know for some this can be difficult, and, and friends, there is grace, of course. You may have to work on a Sunday or, or visit family or, or go on vacation or, or whatever else, but friends, I urge you to not neglect taking a Sabbath rest, even when you are away. I do believe it is part of the moral law that we are still commanded by Jesus to obey in happy obedience. And so, friends, don't rob yourself of it. Because you are robbing yourself of a deep pleasure. And don't rob God of the glory that we are to give Him by observing it. And if Sundays do not work for you on a regular or weekly basis, find, find a gospel-preaching church that meets on another day. Or, friends, I know this is easy for me to say because I'm a pastor and, and I have every Sunday off. But rearrange your schedule if you have to. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. But most importantly, God is worth it. Whatever day it may be, set it aside. And don't, do not neglect the gathering with the local body. Friends, keep it holy. Keep it restful. Keep it joyful. Keep it, keep it celebratory. Friends, keep it worshipful. Amen, brother. <clears throat> now, as we enter into the 170th minute of this sermon, trust me, I'm very self-aware how, how long these things can run sometimes. I'm exhausted right now. As we quickly go back to our passage, quickly, the preacher tells us that there are those who will not enter into God's ultimate Sabbath rest. Last week we saw that the preacher knew full well that amongst the crowd of true believers there are those who would be deceived by their sin. And they would believe themselves to be true Christians but not actually possess true saving faith. Rather, they, they enjoyed the benefits of, of being around God but they didn't know or, or trust or love God Himself. 
The preacher tells us plainly in chapter 3 that those Israelites who did not enter the rest of God are those who failed to reach it due to their unbelief. And so he gives us this warning in verse 1 of, of Hebrews 4, where he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And that fear there is the fear of an unbelieving heart. Now for true believers, we do not have to fear unbelief that leads to falling short of God's rest. But if you are here this morning and you are unsure, if you are truly saved, unsure if you have truly put your faith in Jesus, heaven, pray that the Lord puts that fear on your heart. That fear of unbelief. And put your faith in Him. Verse 2 is very important for us to understand as well. It says, For good news came to us, meaning Christians, just as to them, meaning those unbelieving Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith with those who listened. What the preacher is saying is that the Israelites who did not make it to the promised land, did not make it into God's rest, heard the good news that God was leading them to a wonderful and complete rest, not just the land of Canaan, but also in the life to come. But simply hearing that message did not benefit them because they didn't listen to it and believe it with faith. And so even though they were part of Israel, they were not part of the people of God. Because remember, as we spoke about at the beginning of chapter 3, the true people of God, both in the Old Covenant and in the New, are not united by blood or by nationality, but we are united by what? Christ. We are united by faith. And so you may be here this morning, and your parents and your grandparents may have been believers. You may have been to church before. You may have been going to church for your entire life, never missing a Sunday. But if you do not hear the message of the gospel, the message that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness and saving from the wrath of God, yes, the wrath of God, if you do not hear that message and place your faith in Christ Jesus and, and repent, turn away from your sin, even though you are in the church, around believers, you will fail to reach God's rest. Despite what many would have you believe, Christianity is not a universalist religion. It's not. Christianity does not say that anyone and everyone, no matter what religion they hold to, as long as they're a good person, or maybe even if they're not so good of a person, will enter into heaven. Not at all. Christianity says that unless you hear the message of Christ with ears of faith, unless you repent and turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus, you will not enter into the rest of God. That is unquestionably the truth that we see in verse 3. Who is that? Who is it that entered the rest? We who believed, believed in Jesus, enter that rest. 
And so, friends, it is actually good to have a healthy fear of unbelief. If you are an unbeliever, let that healthy fear drive you to the foot of the cross and into Jesus' saving grace. Charles Spurgeon, who I like to quote all the time because he just says things way better than I could ever say them. He says this. He says, there is the door of faith. Sinner, will you enter? If you refuse to enter, know this. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you can be saved or find rest. Do you say, I am unfit to enter? Oh, friends, it is, it is for the unfit that Jesus died. He died for the ungodly. Remember that. He came into the world to save sinners, as 1 Timothy 1.15 says. Catch at that precious word and let your unworthiness rather console you than depress you, since your unworthiness is your claim to the promise through God's grace. He came to save sinners, even the very chief of them. And friends, if you're talking to an honest Christian, he will tell you that he is the chief of sinners. And yet God saved him. I am the chief of sinners, yet God saved me. He can save you too. The last verse of our passage, verse 11, connects back up to verse 1. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So friends, the question is, how do we strive to enter into that rest? And it's, it's simply by doing what the preacher of Hebrews has already told us to do again and again. By doing what he says in Hebrews 2, verse 1, by paying attention to what you have heard, to the things that God has been teaching you in your own private Bible study and here on Sunday mornings or at one of the gospel groups that you, that you go to. Don't let these things that we talk about, these holy and wonderful things, go into your mind and, and, and just go away the next day or the next moment or the next minute or the next hour. But pay attention. Pay attention to the things that you have heard. And then by considering Jesus, Hebrews 3, verse 1, by, by, by not being lazy in your thought life, but instead taking every thought captive and submitting it to the, the authority of Jesus and seeking to not be passive in your mind, but, but be active and think of all those wonderful and virtuous and beautiful things above with purpose. And by doing what he says in Hebrews 3, verse 15, by exhorting your brothers and sisters in Christ every day. We need each other. We say that so much here at Redeemer. You may be sick of hearing it, but friends, I'm going to keep saying it because I need you. I need each and every one of you. And friends, you need each other. The Christian life is not a lone wolf endeavor. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, let's be a church that strives in all of these different ways to enter into the rest of God and see each other enter into the rest of God. Now, I had about 87 other pages worth of things left to say, but uh, I think we'll end it there. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we are so undeserving. We are so rebellious. Lord, we were far from you. Not only were we far from you, Lord, but we were running in the opposite direction. Cursing your name every step of the way. But in your great mercy, out of your great love for us, and not just your love for us as a group, but but love for us individually, Lord, you granted us Lord, the, the, the right. Lord, you granted us the access to enter into your rest that only you deserve. So God, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that, that on Sunday mornings we can get just a, a small taste of that rest. Lord, through, throughout our life, as we see grace upon grace that you give us, Lord, we, we get a, a, a small portion of the true rest that is yet to come. Lord, as, as we will, God, not have to only see you in faith, but we will see you face to face. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.